following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So I want to start this morning with a poem. Is that okay? Any Emily Dickinson fans in the room? Here's a poem by Emily Dickinson. And I'm going to give you a a literary criticism quiz following the poem. Which is a great way to ruin art, right? Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. It's a lovely little poem, isn't it? So Emily Dickinson uses a central metaphor in this poem to describe hope. What is the central metaphor in the poem? A bird. That's right. That's as far as I'm going to go with the quiz. (laughs) I don't know what it is about our brains or about language that makes that fit. There's something about it that rings true, isn't there? Hope is like a bird. Hope as a bird. It wouldn't make very much sense, I don't think, certainly it would require a poet of great skill, to describe hope as a rhinoceros, right? That wouldn't work. <laughs> Something about the grunting and the snorting and the, the horn <laughs> just doesn't seem very hopeful. But the bird, that little bird that kept so many warm, somehow works. I think it's a really neat and kind of beautiful thing that metaphorical language and metaphorical thinking connects with us so deeply and it it turns on a light in a dark room in our understanding somehow. And we don't even have to understand why that's true for us to know that it is. Some people think that metaphors are an inferior way of thinking about the world or of understanding the world. It probably goes for all kind of abstraction and artistic types of expression. There are those who would say these are not as legitimate ways of describing the world as perhaps something clinical or uh, physical or more immediately comprehensible. But I would say that the truth is there's no other way to understand the world. Because at the heart of it, almost all language is metaphorical in one way or another, isn't it? If you don't agree with me, I'm going to quote Robert Frost. And you have to agree with Robert Frost, right? Because he took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. (laughs) Isn't it weird how the worst work from some of the best artists becomes the most well-known? See also Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World, right? So... Here's what Robert Frost, like, this series is tough, man. I'm going after Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin. Now I'm going after Robert Frost. Man. This is what Frost said about metaphorical thinking. He said, all thinking is metaphorical, except mathematical thinking. He also says, unless you are at home in the metaphor, unless you have had your proper poetical education in the metaphor, 
you are not safe anywhere. Because you are not at ease with figurative values. You don't know the metaphor in its strength and in its weakness. You don't know how far you may expect to ride it and when it may break down with you. You are not safe in science. You are not safe in history. It concludes by saying all metaphor breaks down somewhere. That's the beauty of it. It is touch and go with the metaphor, and until you have lived with it long enough, you don't know when it is going. So, metaphors are not just limited to the realm of poetry. They're all around us. And that is a good thing. Our brains are created, and they evolved to respond positively to this way of talking and thinking. It's just how we process information from the world around us. But, as Frost said, of course, everything has its limits. Take the bird, for example. Emily Dickinson found the, the, the way to talk about a bird that helped us understand the concept of hope. But that doesn't mean that everything you would say about a bird therefore applies to the concept of hope, right? Have you ever come out to your car and found what the bird did to it? Right? Not hopeful. <laughs> the metaphor is limited. <laughs> I illustrated this a couple weeks ago. If you are here, you remember the egg, right? How uh, uh, some people have tried to explain the very complicated doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists in one, was one being with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, using an egg which has three parts, a shell, the egg white, and the yolk, right? That's why Jesus said, my yoke is over easy. <laughs> if you don't like that one, you can blame Megan Resig, who gave it to me at the keyboard this morning. <laughs> but we talked about how absurd it would get if you just took this egg thing, right? And you said, well, the, the tough exterior means that uh, that must be the father. The shell is the father. And if you crack it open, that's like the, uh, the virgin birth. Right? And Jesus goes in the pan and then, um, you know, it gets silly after a while. Metaphors break down. And of course, to a person who's never seen a bird or an egg, now I know there's nobody like that, but for some more complicated metaphors, it may be that there's people who don't get the language at all. So, metaphors are limited. But they're still powerful. And what we do when we read the Bible is we take in lots and lots of metaphorical, figurative, analogical language. And it helps us to understand great, big theological truths. We couldn't get anywhere without them, metaphors. But we do have to remember that they're limited. Because you cannot describe the full scope of God with any one image. Just as there's much more that could be said about hope beyond what the bird metaphor would give us, there is much more that could be said about God than any one image in Scripture or elsewhere could give us. And here's the other thing about metaphors. Every person is drawn more to certain metaphors than to others. Every metaphor, therefore, works better for some people than for others. Right? So we always have to keep that in mind. 
one that you find, language that you might find really helpful might be something that's not helpful to me. It might even be confusing to me. It might even be harmful to my conception of God if you keep pushing it and pushing it. And that is actually why we spent quite a bit of time in the first two weeks of this series on a complicated theological idea, the atonement, doing a little bit of deconstruction of one particular metaphor. Sometimes you have to do some deconstruction before you can do good construction work. That's what we were trying to do regarding the, uh, the legal metaphors, the metaphors about um, our legal status, spiritually speaking. And I sort of, I should go back and sort of apologize a little bit to, to Luther and Calvin and to anybody else who's a lawyer, right? Lawyers are easy to pick on, okay? So, but, but let's not take away the central metaphor from them that might help them understand God and salvation and the atonement, right? Calvin and Luther were lawyers in their, before they became church reformers, and so they, they hammered home this legal metaphor. And that's our heritage as Protestants, we have all kinds of that ringing in our ears for 500 years, right? But it's not a bad thing to be a lawyer any more than it's a bad thing to be a school teacher. There are good and bad of both, right? I will leave it to you to determine whether Luther and Calvin were good lawyers or good theologians. I think, you know, it's not, it's not black and white. There are shades of gray with all of this. So having done some deconstruction work, I want to, as much as possible, Stop doing deconstruction because I think it's time to do something a little bit more constructive. And what I want to do today is be constructive from like 50,000 feet. Right? I want to give a very broad picture of some other imagery in the Bible. Some other metaphors and analogies in the Bible for what the atonement means. For, as the slide says, for how Jesus saves us. How we understand Jesus saving us. So, again, it's going to be 50,000 feet. I'm going to give you a, mostly a list with just a couple of key, quick scriptural references. We're going to fly through that. And then I want to land for a little bit longer on two of them that I think are particularly helpful um, for reasons that I'll explain when we get there. Does that make sense? All right. So here are some, just some, of the images for the atonement in Scripture. One would be liberation from slavery. Now here again, here's something that, like, that um, nobody in my ancestral history, to my knowledge, has been enslaved. So this language um, connects with me on a certain level, but for someone whose ancestors were enslaved, I imagine this is more powerful. There's many references in Scripture to our being bought with a price, and the image there is of a slave auction, and then being redeemed. This is a wonderful trope in, in a lot of literature and, and TV and stuff, right? It's a, a central thing in, in Game of Thrones, right? Daenerys buys up the slaves and then frees them all, right? There's also, by the way, constant references in Scripture to uh, uh, Paul referring to himself and to other Christians as slaves of Christ. The word doulos is translated as sometimes as servant, sometimes as slave. It's the same word. And we're slaves of Christ. So this liberation from slavery means that we have a new master. A master who is gentle and loving and freeing as opposed to harsh and disciplinarian. 
and hurtful and oppressive. Right? So liberation from slavery, there's one. How about this one? A new citizenship. Once again, as far as I know, my mom has done our genealogy for a while. I don't know how long we have to go back before somebody changed citizenship to become a citizen of, of this country. But it's far enough back that it really doesn't mean anything to me. Some of you have uh, relatives, maybe one generation above you, maybe you yourself naturalized. Maybe you yourself or your family changed citizenship from the place you used to be, the allegiances you used to have, to a new set of allegiances and cultural and geographical identity. That's a powerful idea. Colossians 1.13, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So there's a hint there that uh, the, the scriptural understanding of this citizenship change is um, monarchy, right? Not republic or democracy or something else. We have a king in Jesus, not a president, not a council, not a congress. We have a king. So by the way, many of us might want to revisit that change of loyalty, that change of citizenship language, right? Um, it's okay to love America, but it's not okay to love America more than Jesus. All right, so change of citizenship. There's another one. Here's one. A big, big one in Scripture is sacrifice. I haven't talked about sacrifice hardly at all in this series, and some of you are probably wondering why. Well, what happened was this became so big and beautiful and wonderful, this topic for me, that I just kept like bubbling over with more stuff, and I never got to sacrifice. But what I did, um, because I can do this, <laughs> is I made the series go longer, right? <laughs> We had some changes in what was supposed to happen next anyway, so I just was like, yeah, let's do atonement until we're all sick of it. No, we're going we're gonna to stop right before we get sick of it. That's the thing. I'm going to leave you wanting more. But we are going to do uh, one whole sermon, and I'm not sure if it'll be um, a couple weeks from now or three weeks from now, on a Jewish atonement, right? Because all the early Christians were Jews, and their understanding of Christian atonement was absolutely informed by their understanding of Jewish atonement, which includes sacrifice. So we're going to talk about Jesus as our sacrificial lamb. We're going to talk about Jesus as the Passover lamb, which are different, by the way. We're going to talk about Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for all sin, for all time. We will get to that. Sacrifice is a big one. There's a bunch of relational metaphors in the scriptures for atonement. Marriage is one of them, right? You know the phrase, the bride of Christ, right? And this applies to men and women, that we are somehow the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Um, All throughout Scripture, there's one really fascinating thing in the beginning of Romans 7, which you could look at and read for yourself if if I get boring or if you want to do it later, where Paul imagined this this kind of weird, um, kind of bi-directional metaphor uh, about marriage. Paul imagines us as a widow, who having died to her husband is now free to remarry and belong to another. That's a, I, you could spend days thinking about that. Other relational metaphors in Scripture, reconciliation of two parties who have been estranged. If you have ever had this happen in a meaningful way in your life, this is probably powerful for you. The idea that you were 
you were estranged and separated by some wrong between two parties. And what a joyous thing it is when reconciliation happens. Anybody ever experienced reconciliation? Anybody longing for reconciliation in a relationship in your life? This is another powerful metaphor for what the atonement is. And then... Um, Famously, in our history, we uh, last year did a series called Ambassadors of Reconciliation, didn't we? So having been reconciled to God in Christ, it's part of our task now to be ambassadors of that reconciliation for, for our world. The reconciliation is another relational metaphor. Uh, similarly, another relational one a, to a certain extent, former enemies of God are now at peace with him. Once again, I will say, I have never experienced war myself. Some of you have. Many of our relatives have. In certain parts of the world, this is the only thing that anybody ever thinks about, is war and strife. This metaphor might be very powerful for somebody in that setting. To know that enemies of God are now at peace with him. A powerful thing to say. I could go on and on. There are images of Christ winning a victory over Satan, over evil powers, over sin, over death itself. There are images of healing that happen. And yes, there are images about a change in legal status from guilt to innocence There's even images about the exchange of our sin for his righteousness. So I don't want to completely deconstruct that language. I simply want to create a balance. And what I want to do in the few minutes that I have left this morning is dig just a little bit deeper into two other images, two other metaphors in Scripture that explain the atonement for us. And by dig a little deeper, what I mean is show you slightly more scriptural language about them. And even these I will have to be a little bit brief with. And if you are fascinated by this concept of the, the breadth of metaphor and analogy and imagery in the Bible for the atonement, I can send you a three-page PDF bulleted list of all this stuff with scriptural references and everything. So just email me if you want that and I'll, I will send it to you. Scott at artisanchurch.com The two metaphors... Images, analogies that I want to talk about briefly here are metamorphosis and adoption. Metamorphosis and adoption are both powerful ways of understanding how we are made right with God, but notice that they're very different from each other. One speaks of an entire change of bodily form, and the other speaks of being welcomed into a new family. Now, unless I'm missing something, there is absolutely no overlap between those two ideas. Right? Unless you're adopting a butterfly, which would be a little weird. <laughs> I don't think Lollipop has a butterfly wing. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, man, a butterfly wing. It's great. So these two things have nothing to do with each other, and yet they are both used quite widely, actually, uh, by the authors in the New Testament to describe and explain how we're atoned by Christ. So in addition to being beautiful metaphors on their own, this pair of images also 
illustrates the central point that I'm trying to make today and actually throughout this whole series, which is that you can't limit yourself to only one way of understanding Christ's work. Has that been clear so far? (laughs) You can't limit yourself to only one way of understanding Christ's work. Okay, so metamorphosis. I recently learned something fascinating to me about metamorphosis. Would you like to know what it is? And I I will um, very quickly get beyond my depth in the science of this. But what happens in a cocoon when a caterpillar metamorphoses into a butterfly is not that it's in there and it, like, grows wings. The whole thing goes to mush in the cocoon. What was a caterpillar doesn't just kind of, like, gradually become a butterfly. What was a caterpillar becomes goo, like gross liquid. And by the way, one of the fun parts about my job is that I find myself sometimes doing a Google image search for dissected cocoon. (laughs) Now, I didn't bring any of those images to you because they're kind of gooey and gross. But this is what happens in the the cocoon. The, The caterpillar goes to goo and then it reforms as a butterfly. How cool is that? I think that's so cool. It's, it's almost like a little death and a resurrection. So here are some scriptures uh, about metamorphosis. They're on the screen here. I, um, I'm not going to ask you to turn to them. You can just listen to them, but if you're fascinated by this stuff, write down these references and, and meditate on them yourself during this week. By the way, when you see in English in the New Testament the word transformation, the Greek word is metamorphosis. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, and remember that, the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed, metamorphosed, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. We are undergoing metamorphosis. Same book, 2 Corinthians Two chapters later, 5.17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Some translations use the gender pronoun. He is a new creation. It applies to women too. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Something about being in Christ that turns your old self to goo (laughs) and makes it into something new. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is a very commonly memorized passage of Scripture. If you're a church nerd, there's a good chance you memorize this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect transformed. We undergo metamorphosis when our minds are renewed by identifying with the mind of Christ. Mark 9.2 is a very interesting connection here. Because what we're going to do is go back to the concept of identity. Remember identification from the second week? We're going to talk about another way to identify with Christ. The transfiguration is what Bible nerds call this. 
Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. I don't have any time at all to try to unpack what that means or explain it. But he underwent some kind of transformation. And when we identify with Christ, we are also going to be transfigured. We are going to be metamorphosed. We're going to turn to goo and then turn into something new and beautiful. So that's metamorphosis. What a beautiful metaphor for the atonement. And if you were trying to share Jesus with a, uh, a, 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 I don't know what a butterfly biologist is called, but I'm sure there's a special name for it. <laughs> you might start with this rather than with the slave stuff or the legal stuff or the adoption stuff. Oh, did I say adoption? I didn't say that before. Adoption is the next one. I want to show you a picture of my friend Dave. Uh, I don't have permission to share this photo, but he's a cool dude. He would not mind, especially because I'm going to tell you a wonderful story. Um, so if Dave ever listens to this podcast, Dave, I'm sorry that I didn't call you. Um, let's do lunch. <laughs> and thank you for providing a wonderful uh, illustration in my sermon today. This is my friend Dave, 23 years ago, at the age of 18. And you see how big a smile he has? Dave's a guy who smiles a lot, but that's the biggest smile, because on that day, my friend Dave was adopted at 18 years old, and I won't go into what had happened to him in the, in the 18 years that led up to that moment, but he was a full-grown adult who was adopted by a wonderful couple in the Catskills, met them, really amazing people. And Dave did not need parents anymore in the sense that a two-year-old might need parents. But he needed a family. And they gave it to him. They said, you are not just going to come and live with us for a while. You're not just going to be a friend of the family. You are our son. I think we would all smile. <laughs> Some of you in the room, the chances are, were adopted. Maybe you were adopted before you have any memories of it. Maybe, like Dave, you were adopted later in life. Either way, I suspect that this metaphor connects deeply with you. Let me look at some of the scripture with you. John 1, 12. How many times have I quoted John 1 in this series? And for a long time. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, in Him all things were made. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelled among us, moved into the neighborhood. This is right in the midst of this prologue to John's Gospel. John says, but to all who received him, this great logic of God, the Logos, Jesus, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. God said to them, you're not just going to live in my house, I'm not just going to feed you, you are now my son, my daughter. 
1 John 3, 1, 2. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When He is revealed, we will be like Him. For we will, be see, we will see Him as He is. Beloved, we are God's children now. We've been adopted into a new family. I'm one of those people who's extremely lucky or blessed, depending on your theology, to have had a very healthy, safe childhood. I don't, I don't need a new family. Not everybody is so lucky. God's children. Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Setting up these two images against each other. Slavery and adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, Abba being the word for kind of like a, 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 a loving, friendly word for, for father, like dad or something like that. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our own spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. In other words, we have an inheritance. It's not just part of the family now. We are going to receive the wealth of the generations that preceded us. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Man, talk about things we could go down the road with. Christ is the, the Son of God, and we are adopted into the family of God, and we are now joint heirs with the Son of God? That's the kind of thing that if you didn't have a Bible verse that explicitly said it, you could get run out of a church for, for saying something like that. In fact, if we suffer with Him, we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Wade talked about this last week. We talked about the ascension. Okay, two more here. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying here again, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. So Paul clearly wants to talk about this. This contrast between being slaves and being adopted heirs. Lastly, Ephesians 1.5, He destined us for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. So I hope that somewhere, some place this morning in this very broad and then maybe for a few minutes slightly narrower survey of beautiful imagery for the atonement, I hope that somewhere in that you found something that connects with you. You found some way that you can be welcomed and invited and understand the depth of his love for you that you can begin to grasp just the very borders of the beautiful orb of forgiveness.
and redemption and atonement that he makes available to you. And perhaps you have been a person who needed the deconstruction, whose heart has not connected with what you've heard, who have who has heard the, the so-called good news and found it not to be very good for your situation and in your case. I hope this morning that you heard good news. And if you did, regardless, I'm going to ask you for a minute to put aside your concept of whether I am uh, a Christian or not, or perfect, or flawed, or all of that stuff that tries to categorize us. Categorize yourself as someone who is invited to the table of the Lord. If you have heard good news this morning, he is inviting you and calling you to come and dine at his table. And we will deal with the definitions and the categories another day. I would be happy to talk with you about it. For now, let nothing hold you back from responding to the invitation that you might hear to his table. Let nothing hold you back. His body and blood are presented here for you as food for your souls, as a unifying sacrament that places us all at the same level, seated around the same table with Christ himself. So come and tear a piece of the bread, dip it in either the wine or the juice, and receive that food for your souls. Enter into the goodness and the grace that he offers you with all of this beauty and all of this language and all of these images. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.